Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. morning, everyone. My name is Daniel. I'm going to read our scripture today from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. When I'm finished, I'll say, this is the Lord. Um, sorry. When I'm finished, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you could just please respond, praise be to God. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit from the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must roll over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Oh, good morning. Good to see you all here this morning. Uh, an added benefit of coming to church this morning is you get to be kind of close to some other people and get a little bit of body warmth. Uh, it's been a little cool this morning. Um, summer seems to having a little bit of commitment issues, but I don't know, maybe also it's just God's blessing to some of our expectant mothers that they get a little uh, reprieve from the summer heat. Uh, my name is, is Camden, if we haven't met. Uh, this is my wife, Carrie, down here in the front. Um, I'd love to get a chance to meet you uh, today if we have not had the privilege of meeting before. Um, so let's, let's pray this morning, and, and we'll dig right into Genesis chapter 4. Lord, we, we thank you so much for, for your word this, that you've given to us that we can uh, study, we can... Uh, hear from, from you through this word that you've given us. And as this is a story that, that most of us are, are familiar with, Lord, but I pray that, uh, that you would help us to see it with new eyes today, Lord. We know that your word is alive and powerful, and I pray that you would use it in a fresh way this morning to, uh, to point us to you, to show us uh, warnings from this passage that we can use in our life, Lord, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So I grew up going to church, and I heard this story for the first time at, at a very young age uh, in Sunday school uh, many, many years ago. And I was trying to think back to my first kind of recollection of, of hearing this, this story of, of Cain and Abel. And from the very first time I could uh, think of hearing the story, whether the Sunday school teacher meant for it to come out this way or not, my takeaway from the story was that uh, God wanted someone to bring him a lamb as an offering, and Abel brought a lamb, and God was happy with that, and Cain did not, and so because of that, Cain was rejected. And we're going to see that there is definitely significance to the type of offering that Abel brought. But the reason why Cain accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's offering goes much deeper than that. Uh, So before we dive into um, some of the lessons that I want to look at from this chapter, I just want to do a a little bit of uh, introduction and and looking at this idea of this offering that they were bringing to God. And Ben started to touch on this a little bit last week uh, during the talking about the fall, right, where God took a lamb and, uh, and killed that lamb and made from it skins to cover Adam and Eve. When they had sinned and they realized that they were exposed, they had tried to, to sew together some leaves for themselves, but God specifically made them covering of animal skins, and it started this picture that we see throughout the rest of the Bible of the wages of sin being death. And God's plan for substitutionary atonement, for the death of something else, someone else, to cover our sins. We see this offering in, in this passage as well. Uh, you know, moving on past this passage, we see that Noah gave animal sacrifices to God. Even before the, the law was given and all of the details that, that really showed how God wanted his people to, to do this on a, a regular basis as a reminder that their sin needed to be atoned for. We, we move on, we see that uh, a lamb was killed for the Passover and the blood was put on the doors. See later on that God gave Moses a detailed set of instructions for a temple where this would take place and to really really gave a more full picture of what these sacrifices were going to look like, look like and, and what they would point to, this truth that we need something to cover our sins. A little bit later on uh, in the Bible, we see Jesus comes onto the scene. And this sort of promise that a Messiah was coming is being fulfilled. And when John the Baptist, whose ministry started before Jesus to, to make the way for him, when he sees Jesus... He says, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. This was a a public declaration that all of this picture of animal sacrifices is all going to be fulfilled and finished, completed in the work of Jesus Christ as the body that God had prepared, what he was looking for all along. And we look towards the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 5 and 6, when in heaven there's no one worthy to open the scroll, to unfold God's plan for the end times. But the lamb comes, and the lamb is worthy to open the scroll. And all of heaven declares, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and power. So this, this picture spans from the very beginning of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. This picture that a sacrifice is needed 
in order to cover our sins. We are not, none of our efforts to appease God on our own are going to cut it. Now, Jesus did complete in his finished work on the cross, his death and burial and resurrection. He finished and completed that picture that was started with these animal sacrifices. And thank God that he did that. But in Romans, Paul tells us that we are now expected to live lives as living sacrifices. It says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We are called to live lives that are fully surrendered to God in every way, in every area. And as we come to uh, this passage this morning and looking, the very first two sons that were born into this world, one of them was living a life of faith that was surrendered to God, and one of them was not. And the same issues and struggles that they dealt with are the very same ones that we face today. I mean, it can look like, as, as we think about these animal sacrifices that were given, it can look like uh, a little different, right, than, than what we do. When we come to God in, in faith, we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, and that is how we receive God's gift of salvation. Very different than from the, the physical act of sacrificing a lamb. But we see it, the physical act of giving a sacrifice it was not all that was needed. Just like we could say empty words to God, you could come with a sacrifice that would not be accepted by God. It wasn't the physical act alone that was necessary. It has always been by faith. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, people of old received their commendation. So people before Jesus came and died on the cross people still were receiving their commendation to God through faith. Since by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel, one of the very first humans to ever live, his legacy of faith is still speaking to us to this day. And it has always been by faith. Abel brought his offering by faith with a heart of faith. And that is why it was accepted by God and Abel's was not. Abel's sacrifice is not talked about nearly as much in, the, in Genesis chapter 4. We read about his faith in, in Hebrews, but, but not really a lot is said about Abel in this passage. This passage mo mostly focuses on Cain. So really, it's a cautionary tale in a way. And I believe there's, there's some things that we can look at from this passage today that will help us to realize where Cain went wrong and what we need to do in order to live a fully surrendered life of faith like Abel did. In 1 John chapter 3, in verse 12, we also learn that Cain murdered his brother because Cain's deeds, had become, his actions, his way of life had become evil 
and his brother's was righteous. And he could tell that difference, and because of that, he murdered his brother. If we're going to abstain from the disastrous path of Cain, there's a few lessons that I want to look at uh, from this passage this morning. And the first is that we must correctly understand God's blessings. Cain, even though his, his actions, his way of life had, had started to become evil, he was greatly blessed by God. And we see two ways in particular. Um, the first, as, uh, as Lucius mentioned, he was given this great opportunity to commune conversationally with God. And we're going to look at that a little more in depth later on. But the other great blessing that Cain was given that really pertains to this passage and, and to the offering that he had given, which was part, came from this blessing that God had given him, is that we see when God rescinds this blessing, that God had given him this blessing of being able to work the ground. His, his job, as we see, that he was a, a worker of the ground. That's how he was known. That is what he, he did. And God blessed his efforts. We see uh, in last week in, in Genesis chapter 3 how God specifically cursed the ground. Sin came into the world, and that definitely affected the interaction between people. But beyond that, God specifically cursed the ground. He said thorns are going to come up. Things that didn't exist prior to that time were going to make life harder. The Garden of Eden, as we know, was right, a, a place where there was just bountiful food available. But when mankind had to leave the garden and work this ground that had been cursed by God, it was very, very difficult. And we especially see an emphasis placed on this prior to the flood. And as we know, the flood right, very much changed the way that the earth looked. But in, uh, in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 29, when Lamech has a son named Noah, right, and we, we know the story of Noah, he names him that specifically. The name Noah meant relief. And he said, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So before the flood, we see this emphasis on the ground just being very hard to work. And yet God had blessed Cain and that the ground was giving up its strength to Cain. But Cain did not correctly use and understand this blessing that God had given him. When God comes to Cain and confronts him with his sin and says that he is not going to accept his offering because it is not sincere, it is not an offering of faith, Cain is shocked and angry. And he shouldn't have been. His actions had become evil. He, there's no reason why he should have been surprised that God would confront him about this. But God's blessing on Cain was misunderstood and became a temporary mask to the sin that was going on in Cain's life. There's another story in the Bible that I think really emphasizes how this can happen. In the book of 2 Samuel, we see the, the sin of David Right? David committed adultery with another woman whose husband was one of David's soldiers. And to cover everything up, 
He told his general to, to take this woman's husband and, and put him out in the battle, and not even in a way to try to win the battle that day, but just in a way to make sure that her husband was killed. And after that has happened, and the general sends a messenger to David to give him the news, David tell, gives this messenger a message to give back to the general, Joab. And he says in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 25, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your tack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Reading between the lines, what is David saying there? Don't worry about this. The situation kind of got out of control, but you know what? God is still giving us the victory. Everything's fine. I think he understood that, you know, this, is, this wasn't really that big of a deal. And God's blessing on our lives can be misinterpreted and used as an excuse to not deal with our sin. When, when God did send Nathan the prophet to confront David about this sin, he said, you have scorned the Lord with your actions. But David didn't feel it as he was just relying on the victories that God was giving him to kind of gloss over the sin in his life. We see this in our society today. People get away with saying and doing all sorts of things as long as uh, revenues are coming in, as long as their team is winning. And this can creep into the church as well. Attendance is up, the giving is up, all the metrics are doing well, so we can kind of gloss over that, that maybe something is going on under the surface that is just rotten to the core. And for a little while, maybe that will work, but in the end, just like Cain, we are going to have to confront the sin and not use God's blessings to gloss it over. We see a very great, correct picture of understanding God's blessings in the book of Job. Job was greatly, greatly blessed by God. And part of that was because of his obedience and his life of honoring God. God has given us many, many promises in the Bible that if we obey him, he will bless us because of it. We know that, that we are not blessed by God because we are good and because we are so impressive to God. We receive God's blessings because he is good, because he loves through Christ to lavish his undeserved blessings on us. And Job received many, many of these blessings. And Satan came to God and said, Job is just propped up by all these blessings. If you take those away, you'll see. He's not, he's not really surrendered to you. And God allowed all of those physical blessings to be stripped away from Job. But Job correctly understood God's blessings. And even when all of those things were removed, he said, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is a correct understanding of the way that God blesses us and the way that he wants to use those things in our life. It can kind of look as a, at a cursory reading of Job like, like God is just playing out a bet with the devil at Job's, Job's expense. But that's not at all what is happening. All through the book of Job, God is blessing Job. He, yes, he removes many of those physical blessings, but he imparts spiritual blessings to Job. And God is honored and glorified in a way that he never would have been 
if Job had just held on to all of those physical blessings his whole life. Gordon MacDonald once said, those under pressure seek God because there is nothing else. And those smothered in blessings tend to drift with the current. And that is why I question the term blessing sometimes. Surely something is not a blessing if it seduces us away from inward spiritual cultivation. Every good gift comes from above and is a blessing to us. But what we do with that and how we understand correctly God's blessings is vital. Perhaps no one in history was blessed with physical blessings more than Solomon, and yet we see through the enjoyment of those blessings, his heart turned away from God. Cain misunderstood and and misused God's blessings, and then he failed to see that God's correction is also a blessing to us, and he responded to it in anger. So we must correctly see God's blessings, but we must also practice continual repentance. One of the great blessings that God has given us is that through his correction, he is fashioning us more and more into the likeness of his son. But in order to correctly respond to that correction, we are going to have to practice continual repentance. When we look at this story of Cain, perhaps nothing is missing more than this story than a heart of repentance. When we look in, in verse number four, uh, let's look at verse number five. It says, but for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And this is the point where Cain, who had missed so many opportunities for repentance, this is the point where he must repent in order to avoid the catastrophic actions that follow. But he was not someone who lived a life of repentance. And when he needed to the most, he missed that opportunity as well. God graciously confronts Cain with his sin. But instead of repenting, Cain clings to his pride, which turns into bitterness and eventually murder of his brother. God describes sin here as as having a presence and a will. It is something that is crouching by the door, ready to pounce on him, something that must be dealt with, something that cannot just be left there. A couple summers ago, my sister Curiel came to visit us right around this time of year. And I think it was the first summer that we had lived in, in the house that we live in now. And uh, one night, it was uh, right after she had, had come, I uh, was letting the dog out and flipped on the porch light, stepped right outside, and right next to the door uh, was the biggest wolf spider I've ever seen. Um, if you don't know what one of those are, you can Google it uh, today. 
Um, but just, just be ready, right? It's not a pretty picture. And she was very fascinated by it, and she, uh, she caught it and took it a couple towns over and let it go, which is not really what I would have done. But then this spring, I stepped out the door, the same situation, and right in the exact same spot was another wolf spider. Um, and thankfully, I didn't have a heart attack either time, and I'm still here today. But if that thing would have jumped at me, I would have had a heart attack, and that would have been the end of it. So one of, one of us had to go. Uh, so our house is for sale, if anyone's looking for one. Um, not really. But that, that had to be removed. I wasn't, that's not something I was just going to let sitting there to surprise me every day. And it also made me think, even sins that we, we think that we've dealt with before, maybe years before, can come back again in the same way. Be, when we least expect it, be ready to pounce again. What can we do? How do we rule over sin? It's not a matter of willpower. That's never going to work. It is a matter of living a life of repentance. In his uh, 95 Theses, Martin Luther, in his very first one, made this statement. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You know, sometimes I think about repentance as, as something that maybe I practice every couple months, maybe after a bad week where I, I didn't really didn't have a really good time with God and, and things came up and I was frustrated and, and eventually realized, oh, you know what, I need to get back and I need to repent of this thing that I'm dealing with. But really, this is a, should be an ongoing posture of our heart. We see in, in Psalm 139, verse 23, we see this prayer, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. This should be a continual presence. As God, as God works in our life and, and shows us things that we need to work on, it's almost a spiritual discipline, this, this act of having a heart of repentance, a heart that is soft to God's leading and his conviction in our life. Cain did not practice this, and when he needed to, he didn't have the wherewithal. The Bible also talks about this with Esau, how he sought to repent when it was too late but he was not a man given to repentance, and he could not, though he sought it, he could not find any place in his heart to repent. On one side of, uh, the ditch on one side of the road of repentance is living in, in just continual thought of our sinfulness in a way that Satan can use to, to just paralyze us and make us feel like we will never measure up and we can never do anything for God. But the ditch on the other side of the road is not understanding the gift of repentance that God has given as a way to deal with our sins, and thus having to excuse our sins and cover them up instead of dealing with them. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we fully understand repentance, we can freely admit that we are the chiefest of all sinners. But then we can also joyfully proclaim that our good, merciful, gracious God cleanses us from all of those sins. Because Cain did not practice repentance, it was not there for him to exercise when he needed it the most. And when, God, when we repent and God cleanses our sin, we can come confidently into his presence. And that brings us to the last lesson that I want to see today, is that we must dwell in God's presence. As we saw last week, Adam and Eve before their sin, had this very special relationship with God where they were able to walk and talk with God openly every day. And after they sinned and they were removed from the garden, we don't see any other uh, description of how they interacted with God after that. But we see in this passage how Cain interacts with God and how Cain is still living not in the garden, but still living in close proximity to this this presence of God that was almost a remnant of this relationship that God had with Adam and Eve. And he's still able to freely communicate with God. And after this time, we see that uh, this, this really becomes kind of spotty. God speaks directly to Noah, but it sounds more one-sided from that story. God tells and gives Noah instructions of what to do. Now, God speaks to Abraham often in the same way through a command for Abraham to do something. And then in various times, more conversationally, God speaks conversationally with Moses and and Joshua at times. But we really start to see this taper off after that. And Cain was one of the people that we know was given this blessing of being able to directly interact with God, to live in God's presence and commune with him but he misuses it. He talks flippantly to God. He does not understand this gift that he's been given until it's too late and he's sent away from God's presence. We see in, in, in verse 11, when God gives this proclamation to Cain because of his sin, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. And we see in verse 16, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I think my greatest propensity towards sin is really to use it as a sort of pain medicine to enable a life and a lifestyle that neglects to spend the correct amount of time in God's presence, dwelling in the presence of God. When I am am hurting or, or confused about something, It's so easy to run to to grab a cortisone shot of sin, 
to lash out in anger, to have a, a, a bad attitude, to try to fix things in, in my own will instead of submitting to God's will, instead of coming into the presence of the great physician. When David was confronted with that, the sin that I mentioned earlier, he wrote Psalm 51. In verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Our joy and God's presence are inextricably connected. We see this in Psalm 16 in verse uh, 11. He says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. A life that is fully surrendered to God is one that is marked by peace and joy. Are we experiencing fullness of joy? Are we experiencing all of the joy that God wants us to? This last week, did I experience all of the joy that God had available to me? If we are going to experience that peace and that joy, we must dwell in God's presence. So what does that look like? How do we dwell in God's presence? There's, that's a whole sermon to itself, but I'm just going to touch on, on two things quickly. The first is that we must behold him. And the entry point to this that often causes me to not take the time to behold him is just that, it's time. Dedicated time away from all the other distractions of life to really, truly behold him. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah gets a vision of God in heaven. And he takes the time to soak in every detail of it and describe what he has seen and everything that he is feeling and seeing about God. I think my version often of, of Isaiah's vision would be that I see God high and lifted up and then my cell phone goes off. And then, oh, got to go out the door. And all of the things that we miss because we don't take the time to behold him. When Isaiah does take the, the time to behold everything that he sees because of God, when God does say, who shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah says, put me in, coach. I'm ready to go. And I think oftentimes, well, the reason why we're not surrendered, why we're so hesitant to do the things God is calling us to do is because we haven't taken that time to really stop and behold him. John, who wrote the, uh, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, the last book of our Bible, in, in far greater detail, was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and received this vision in which he writes great, at great length and great detail everything that he saw as he beheld this vision. And is it any wonder that God gave this great vision to someone who lived on a deserted island and had the time in order to write down this vision? I often think about uh, John and how he was sent exiled to this island as uh, a, a form of punishment. Uh, it makes me wonder if he was an introvert. Uh, 
as a mega introvert, if the punishment that I received was that I was going to be sent away to an, egg, uh, an island in exile, I would think, oh, oh no, that's terrible. Anything but that, really. <laughs> but in that, John was given the time to receive this great vision from God, to behold him. And you may think, I, I want to do that. I need to work on doing that. But I know this next week, the schedule is already full. I have family coming in from out of town. I, I don't think I'm going to have as much time as John to receive, uh, to really stop and behold him as much as I would like to. The other way that we can really dwell in God's presence is that we meditate on him. In Psalm 139, David has this great psalm of meditation. I'm not going to read it all. I, I encourage you to, to read it later. But David meditates on how God formed him, on how God wrote the story of every day of David's life, and how there's nowhere in this entire universe that David could go where he wouldn't be in God's presence. So what is the difference? If we're, there's nowhere we can go where we aren't in God's presence, what's the difference between that and dwelling in God's presence? It's the meditating on him. As he says in Psalm 139, in verse 18, I awake and I'm still with you. His first thought when he woke up in the morning was, hey, God is still there. God still loves me. And his meditation all throughout the day continued in that way. In Psalm 119.97 says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. What is it that comes up in our day that takes our meditation away from God? And on the other side, what is the things that we can put into our day that causes our meditation, our thoughts, our focus to return to God? One of the ways that we can do that is just by acknowledging and understanding the blessings that God gives us throughout the day. And when we stop and we have a heart of gratitude and we thank Him for those, it returns our focus and our mind once again on Him. And that brings us full circle to understanding God's blessings. In order to live a surrendered life, we must correctly interpret God's blessings. God, Cain did not understand and correctly use God's blessings, and he used it to gloss over sin in his life that he needed to deal with. We must continually practice repentance when God does graciously come to us and show us things in our life that he wants us to work on, we must have that continual heart of repentance to align ourselves with God's working in our life. And lastly, we must dwell in his presence. This great gift that we have to come before God, to behold him, to commune with him, to meditate on him, is necessary for us, like Isaiah, to have that willing heart that is surrendered to him in all things. If we can implement these things in our life, I, I believe that, like Abel, we can have lives that are an enduring testament to God's goodness, instead of being an example like Cain of what happens when we fail to surrender our life to Christ. But let me pray for us that God will, will just use this to work in our hearts today. Lord, uh, we come to you and 
we acknowledge our, our propensity to, to follow the pitfalls that Cain fell into, Lord. I pray that you would use your word today, that your spirit would work in our heart. For those that aren't saved, Lord, I pray that today you would give them conviction of sin and you would reveal yourself, open their eyes to you, your finished work on the cross, Lord, that they may accept it in faith. And for those of us that know you as Savior, Lord, I pray that you would work in us afresh and anew, that we would meditate, that we would dwell on, on you, that when you are working in our lives, that we would understand what you are doing, that we would respond correctly with a heart of repentance. Even now, Lord, the things that you are, are working on in our hearts, the things that you have brought to our mind this morning, Lord, I pray that you would help us to repent and to come back to you in the full joy of your salvation. And pray this in Jesus' name.